Hi, Dave Emery here. This is For the Record Program number 1269. Interview number eight with Jim DiGemio about JFK Revisited. This is being recorded on October 28th of the year 2022. And once again, it is my pleasure and my privilege to bring back to our airwaves Jim DiGemio, not only the author of, or the author of among other titles, uh, Destiny Betrayed, the focal point of 25 one-hour interviews we did in 2018 and 2019. He also was selected by Oliver Stone to write the screenplay for JFK Revisited, both the two-hour and the four-hour DVDs that are available, or DVD versions that are available. And he wrote the book, JFK Revisited, featuring transcripts of the two-hour version, the four-hour version, plus supplemental interviews. Jim, welcome back once again to our airwaves. Nice to be here, Dave. Alrighty. Uh, as, as I was reading the transcript, Jim, for the four-hour version, and again, uh, when people order the DVDs, there is a two-hour version, a four-hour version, and both are available in re- regular DVD or Blu-ray. Uh, there was discussion of missing photographs of the autopsy. And on page 168, Douglas Horn, a member of the ARRB, uh, imposed as follows. During this discussion, the DOJ witness, Mr. Belcher, who was an attorney, noted they were discussing missing photographs. Jeremy Gunn, my boss, the general counsel, did ask why these people signed an inventory which they knew not to be true. And Stringer, that's John Stringer, I'll let you explain who that is in just a minute. And Stringer said, quote, well, some people do object, but they don't last very long, unquote. Uh, <laughs> that, I think, is something that the importance of which could not be exaggerated. You know, Jim, what we're talking about with JFK, uh, what we're talking about with so many things is the big lie. And I suspect that what John Springer was talking about really is at the foundation of why the big lie has been so effective. Uh, tell us a couple things, Jim. Uh, one, who was John Springer? We'll come back to him later when we get John to Stringer was yeah. the official autopsy uh, photographer in the JFK assassination. And Jeremy Gunn was the chief counsel of the review board. And Stringer is one of the more interesting witnesses that, um, the ARB interviewed. Stringer was not interviewed by the Warren Commission. All right. And not only did he give away this, okay, this wonderfully profound pithy statement about yeah some people do object but they don't last that long okay in other words if you don't go along with the story you're out of there okay um but he's the one who said that he denied that the brain photographs at the national archives were taken by him on the grounds that he didn't use that kind of film and he did not use that kind of photographic process. So he was a very, very important witness. And when I was writing the screenplay, he was going to be one of my main keystones in putting that screenplay together. Uh, what do you make of what he said? Well, I, I think it's pretty, uh, Penetrating, isn't it? I mean, (laughs) you know, yeah, I mean, it's a very insightful comment. You know, when, when you have this freight train, you know, that is driving down the track. Okay. I mean, um, if you want to jump, okay. (laughs) If you want to stay on, you stay with the story, you know, and that's what all the, now what he's specifically talking about there is that there were people at that meeting who knew 
that this was not the complete photographic inventory. Okay. But they went ahead and they signed the document saying it was the photographic inventory. Okay. And he, Belcher, who was a, the Department of Justice lawyer. Okay. He, right. he understood that. He understood that he's supposed to be conducting this. He's supposed to be, you know, the guy there who is making sure that everything is on a straight and narrow. Okay. But he knew everything was not on a straight and narrow. Okay. And, and, uh, I think that's the one where he eventually took his signature off the front page. Okay. But they, they discovered other, um, uh, other copies that survived. Okay. And that's how they figured out that it was him. So, uh, you know, so this is a perfect illustration of the attorney general's office, Department of Justice, okay, going ahead and justifying, all right, through hook or crook, that knowing something was not completely, not complete, not completely filed, okay, they went ahead and said it was anyway. And this is a very serious problem, as you said, not in the JFK case, not just in the JFK case, you know, but of, you know, any of these serious problems that we have, you know, whether they be conspiratorial or non-conspiratorial, you know, it's the fact that people want to put out an official story that is satisfying to them, that doesn't rock the boat, that doesn't disturb things. And we've ended up in the situation we are in. Because of this, as Mark Saul said, and he was one of Jim Garrison's investigators, Hummel, in, in his 1976 Heartland autobiography, he said, "How many lies before you belong to the lies?" And I think what Oliver Stone, what you have done, what I've been trying to do with my radio programs, is to advance the uh, high tide of truth, or perhaps it's the low tide. And uh, the results, I guess, have been mixed. Uh, I, for one, <clears throat> consider Oliver Stone to be a hero. Having look, having researched the JFK assassination for so many years, after JFK came out in 1991, it put the research to an exponentially greater level than it had ever been. And uh, he did that himself. Who paid some dues? And as you explained in our first interview, uh, this was the high tide. Uh, this was a way, and JFK revisited a way for him to, uh, basically, uh, rebut what he was subjected to. By the way, I misidentified. I think this is actually, uh, interview number eight. Uh, not interview number nine in our series, but I'll, I'll double check on that. I, I lose count sometimes. Uh, Jim, in our last talk, uh, that was on, uh, Wednesday, uh, that would have been the 19th of October. Uh, we, that very same day, the Mary Farrell Foundation had filed a lawsuit to oblige the Biden administration and the government to release documents that they had not yet released, but that should have been released. One of those pertained to Operation North Woods. That's something I was familiar with. It was not until I saw the documentary and read the book that I learned that it was because of the ARRB, which came about because of the movie JFK, that North Woods came out. Uh, that's, that's, that's true. We didn't We didn't know about this until the review board declassified the documents. And it created a very big story in the press when they did come out, all right? And Operation Northwoods, see, after Kennedy would not invade Cuba at the Bay of Pigs, all right, after he chose to, he he essentially chose defeat, you know, at the Bay of Pigs, rather than commit American uh, planes or American troops, right? And so the Joint Chiefs were trying to find a way to go ahead and get into Cuba by hook or by crook, right? And so one of the ways they devised 
was what they called Northwoods. Northwoods was a series of what we call today false flag operations. In other words, it was going to be like, for example, have Cuban exiles on our side go on a ramp just through Miami, okay, masquerading as Castro's troops. That was one, okay. Um, another one was to uh, use a kind of uh, drone plane that looked like a passenger plane, okay, and have it attacked over Cuba, you know, and simulate the voices coming down, et cetera, you know, in the plane, all right, that kind of thing. I think one was even having to do with the astronauts, Sean Glenn, okay, uh, to somehow uh, blow up uh, one of the uh, uh, Mer- Project Mercury things and blame it on Cuba, all right? And these, and so Kennedy got a load of these, you know, and see, the thing is, when Kennedy started Mongoose, the secret war against Cuba, he specifically said, you know, look, I do not want to invade Cuba. Okay, that's not what this is all about. All right. Okay. And then, but these guys went ahead. And so they found these backdoor ways to go ahead and try and use these false flag operations in order to invade Cuba. And so Kennedy was so angry about this, all right, that he really reamed Lyman Lemnitzer, who was the chair of the Joint Chiefs, until finally Lemnitzer blew up and said, what do we need an excuse anyway for? Why don't we just go in and invade? (laughs) And when Kennedy heard that, he fired Lemnitzer, all right? Uh, Unfortunately, uh, Lemnitzer found a way out and he went to become the chief of NATO in Europe. Okay. Which probably a terrible mistake by Kennedy because there, there you had that operation, the whole operation Gladio thing going on in Europe at that time. And then William Harvey went to Europe also in 1963, a little bit later. You know, he became the uh, chief of the Rome station. So that wasn't very, that, that was not, let's put it this way. It was rather inconvenient. Okay, to have those two guys over there at the same time, you know, and so this is what happened. Okay, and and the this is how badly these guys wanted to go into Cuba was they would arrange. I think there's 10 of them. There's 10 different options they prepared for Kennedy. All right. And but he he didn't he didn't want any part of it. Um, Do you have any idea? Uh, those of the Mary Farrell Foundation have any idea specifically what they might be able to find if they can oblige the disclosure of the documents? No, I, I, I don't know. I don't know exactly what they're, what they're hunting for. You know, that there was another set of documents on Northwoods. Uh, I'm, I'm not sure about that. I only saw the one set that was presented at Kennedy at that time. It might be that the Joint Chiefs tried to bring it back. I wouldn't be surprised if they would have tried to bring it back in some way or form without Lemnitz or there, thinking that maybe they'd have a better chance at it with Max Taylor, okay, who was friendlier with Kennedy than Lemnitzer was. Kennedy had a very bad relationship with Lemnitzer. Okay, he had a much more friendly relationship with Max Taylor. Well, one thing that is mentioned, though, uh, I, I don't know offhand if it was David Talbot or John Newman, but he mentioned that one of the two mentioned that Kennedy thought when he swapped Maxwell Taylor in for uh, Lemnitzer that he was getting a better deal, but apparently Maxwell Taylor was very close to Lemnitzer. Yes, that ended up being that ended up being true, and I guess one way you can look at this that. Um, um, Taylor was a fox in lamb's clothing. You know, that's one, that's one way you could look at it. Because once we get into the whole Vietnam thing in 1963, you'll see that Max Taylor was actually preparing for the O Plan 34A operations, you know, before, uh, before Johnson, before even Johnson. Okay. 
And I'm sure you know what I'm talking about, don't you? OPLAN 34A. Yeah, these were the covert operations against North Vietnam in which South Vietnamese naval forces were conducting commando raids on the North Vietnamese coast. And U.S. warships, 7th Fleet warships, were protecting them when the Gulf of Tonkin incident took place. Uh, not far not far removed from Operation Northwoods, although this maybe Operation Northwoods in Vietnam, uh, the USS Maddox was inside North Vietnamese territorial waters when we were told it was in international waters when it was mm-hmm. attacked. Then a couple of days later, the Maddox and the Sea Turner Joy were allegedly attacked. It's not clear if they were attacked at all. But the, the way that was represented to the American people was that, my God, our warships were attacked. It was an unprovoked attack by the North Vietnamese. And in fact, it was no such thing. And the 34A program of covert operations uh, was the parent of that particular incident. Right. As I recall, that was authorized by NSA 273, was it not? Yes, that's what made it possible. Because the, the, the South Vietnamese could never have, have, uh, perfected those speedboats, okay, on their own. It was when Johnson changed 273 to allow America to directly go ahead and get involved. That's, that's how these speedboats accompanying the destroyers, okay, that's how that happened. All right now, it's, you know, it's, it's kind of amazing because that you said, you said that because both George Ball and Mac Bundy later admitted that those were provocations. Okay. So you're right. It's a little bit like Northwich, all right, that we were provoking the North Vietnamese. And then of course, what happens is that Johnson does another thing that Kennedy would have never done is that he ordered those airstrikes by American pilots over North Vietnam. I think there were something like 67 sorties that night. Okay. And that was it. That was essentially it. That was the, that tied it all up in a ball. And then Johnson used that. He used the Tonkin Gulf resolution as an act of war. Now, what's so fascinating about this is that Later, when it comes out, you know, William Fulbright, who was the chairman of the Foreign Intelligence Committee in the Senate, who helped pass the Tonkin Gulf Resolution, when he found out he had been deceived, he went on the warpath. I'm sure you remember this. These were the famous Fulbright hearings, which I think started in 1966. And they were broadcast live on television, I think by CBS. All right. And witness after witness would be called to the Senate to ask about this. You know, and George Kennan, who was Mr. X, you know, he, the famous X telegram, you know, from Russia in 1946. Um, he was working for Kennedy at this time up until Kennedy's assassination. And Fulbright asked him, you know, Mr. Kennan, you're the father of this Cold War doctrine that that we have of containment. Is this an example? And Kennan's answer was so beautiful. He said, look, if we behave every time there's a disturbance in Asia or Africa, like an elephant, you know, swatting a fly with his trunk, we will have no stature in the third world at all. We'll have essentially lost the Cold War, you know. So, no, this isn't what I meant when I drew up my doctrine of containment. I was concerned about Europe, not the third world. And that that really did a lot to sink Johnson. He was furious when Kennan got on the air and he tried to get CBS to stop broadcasting those things, you know, and he was partly successful. So, yeah, see, this is the whole idea of a provocation. And that's what those were. And that's what, it, what Johnson used. It's, 
It's amazing. Isn't it really amazing to think how fast this happened after Kennedy was killed? I mean, just well, yeah, and, and I, I remember again, as I've said before, I remember in 1964 being so glad that the moderate peace candidate, i.e. LBJ, <laughs> was, was a right-wing fanatic, uh, Barry Goldwater. And right. it, it turned out that in March of 1964, the 34, not the, the uh, Rolling Thunder program of air raids on North Vietnam had already been codified. And within three months of LBJ being elected, as you noted, the first regular U.S. combat marine units were landing at Da Nang. Yes. So it was simply LBJ was campaigning on a lie, period. Yes, yes. And he, and he knew it was a lie. It wasn't like it was an unconscious lie. He knew he was lying at the time that he was lying, you know. It, 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 one of the things, you know, Jim, in some ways it seems like such a long way from the JFK assassination and what was happening at that time and what is happening now. But one of the things we spoke about was the 1961 meeting with the Joint Chiefs of Staff when they tried to get JFK to sign off on a nuclear first strike on the Soviet Union. And now, with the Ukraine war going on, there's all this talk of nukes and dirty bombs. And we are being told that, A, Russia attacked a group of Azov Regiment POWs in a detention facility that they control with a guided missile. We're also being told that the Zaporizhian nuclear power plant, which is occupied by Russian troops, uh, is being shelled by the Russians. And we're being told that the Russians may very well be planning to blow up a dam at the Windsor K, I forgot the exact pronunciation, and or exploding a dirty bomb. And, uh, the, in fact, uh, Mr. Shoigu, the defense minister of Russia, called, uh, not only, uh, Blinken, I believe, uh, no, I guess it was, uh, uh, my, uh General Austin and uh, General Milley, and also people in France and Turkey and the UK and warned about this. Um, mm. So who knows? Are we about to get a nuclear North Woods in Ukraine? And will uh, Joe Biden stand up to the Joint Chiefs the way LBJ did? I wish I could say I was optimistic. How how did LBJ stand up to the Joint Chiefs? Oh, I, I meant JFK. Excuse oh, okay. <laughs> no, 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 Freudian slip. No, 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 no. JFK. <laughs> OBJ, no, LBJ gave the Joint Chiefs everything they wanted. I think, uh, it was in the Devil's Chessboard. Maybe it was in JFK and the Unspeakable by, uh, James Douglas, uh, Devil's Chessboard by David Talbot. But someone was talking about having conferred with LBJ and uh, he said, quote, I can't get out of Vietnam. My friends are making too much money there. Right. That's correct. Okay. So, uh, that that tells us a lot about what was going on. Uh, Jim, ARRB, that grew out of Oliver Stone's movie. And uh, we were talking about Judge John Tunheim and some of the resistance that he got from various federal agencies. We began to talk about the Secret Service. Uh, tell us, uh, if you would, about how the ARRB and the Secret Service interacted with one another. Well, this was really one of the worst parts of the story. And you have to go to Douglas Horn's book to get the full story on this. Because the ARB report, it was only in there for like maybe a paragraph. Once the legislation was enacted, Okay. The National Archives sent warnings to all the agencies that were going to be involved saying, please do not dispose of anything because this new agency of government is going to be requesting that you forward your intact files inventory to them so they can sort through it and decide what is going to be declassified. Well, Guess what happened? The Secret Service, in they were in receipt of that warning from the National Archives. Okay, 
that they were going to be called upon to present an intact inventory of all documents from the Kennedy administration. They went to work disposing of, I think, two full boxes of stuff. And this included the th- what they call the threat sheets, that is, the assembly of all the threats that the president uh, had under file for each city that he went to. And a lot of these were from 1963. The most serious one, the most grievous one, was in Chicago. They destroyed that file, which is really, you know, and I, and I have to tell you, in Doug Horn's book, he talks about how outraged the ARB was when they learned the Secret Service had done this, okay? And they really had a debate inside the review board about how they should react. And there was an option, the nuclear option, that they were going to call the Secret Service in, alert the press what had happened, and then grill them in front of the TV cameras and the newspaper guys about why they had done what they did and how important those 63 sheets were, all right? Okay, and, uh, you know, Tunheim talks about that in the film, all right? But it was really, really outrageous what they did. And I'm, I'm, I'm sure you've talked about the Chicago plot on your show, right? Well, I have. I have not spent a lot of time on it. That uh, that and uh, Abraham Bolden's ordeal, right? With, with Elmer, uh, things that I want to get to in this talk. Yeah. See, the Chicago plot was a very, very serious occurrence, in which you can say that they were going to they were going to kill Kennedy in Chicago. This was in the first weekend of November of 1963, all right, in which they had a parallel to Dallas in the sense that you had a fall guy who was like a disaffected uh, former veteran who did not like Kennedy and this guy, uh, Valet, Arturo Valet, all right, and that you had these gunmen who appeared to be human exiles coming into Chicago with high-powered rifles, and you had valet working at a tall building and you had the car coming right off the freeway ramp and then straightening out in front of that building. So, <laughs> you know, as many people have said, this was a very similar plot, except it didn't succeed, whereas the Dallas plot did succeed. Well, okay. Uh, Arthur Valet, the <clears throat> perhaps uh Patsy to be in the Chicago plot was not only a former Marine like Lee Harvey Oswald, but he had worked on the U-2, had he not? Yes. He was at the base where the, another base where the U-2 was. So the, the parallels between Valet and Oswald are, are there. And see, the thing is, and, and what I've said many times before, a terrible mistake was made when these files were secret and sent to Washington. Because I believe if they would have been forwarded to Dallas, you know, I believe the Dallas plot would not have succeeded because they were so close in, in parallel to each other. All right. You know, but of course you can look at it. Maybe that's what, that's what the plan was, you know, and I've also said between this and Tampa, which we went over in the film also. Okay. JFK was not getting out of 1963 alive. One way or the other, they were going to get him. All right. They didn't want him going into 64. Uh, the Tampa plot also had some parallels with what we are told took place in Dallas on November 22nd, 1963. Tell us about the Tampa plot, Jim. All right. This one was supposed to take place after a very long motorcade. Okay, at what I think at that time was the tallest building in Tampa was 27 stories. Okay, I think it was called the Floridian. It was a hotel. And the suspected fall guy there was Gilberto Lopez, who had been a former member of the Fair Play for Cuba Committee. 
came to the United States uh, from Cuba, all right, and matriculated in the whole Florida Cuban uh, milieu, and then joined the Fair Play for Cuba committee, all right, and then after the assassination, went to Dallas, went to Mexico City. He was the only guy on an Air Cubana flight from Mexico City to Havana, all right? Now, this one, this one, which I believe is November the 18th, this one they found out about. And they literally, when they saw that the Floridian Hotel was on the motorcade, okay, they invaded that hotel. They brought in supplements from the state troopers, okay, the highway patrol, FBI, Secret Service, and they were on every single floor of that hotel, you know. And you know what happened here? Not very many people know this. See, Kennedy pulled out of Chicago when he got the warning. He did not want to pull out of Tampa, okay? And so he went to Tampa, all right? And then after the motorcade, he stayed in that hotel, and he wanted every single guy who was on that patrol, he wanted to shake their hand and thank them for what they had done, okay? Wow, that is interesting. Um, The Secret Service uh, had a black member named Abraham Bolden. And he wrote a book. I've forgotten the title of his book off the top of my head. The Echo from Dealey Plaza. Alrighty. And he had been attempting to get the Secret Service to uh, basically be forthcoming about what had taken place in Chicago. And he was not given uh, the Congressional Medal of Honor, shall we say. Uh, there is a guy, a Secret Service agent named Elmer Moore. And he figures both in the Abraham Bolden crucifixion, so to speak, and also in some pressure. And I believe it was Dr. Crenshaw. But tell us, first let's start with what, what happened to Elmer, uh, to Abraham Bolden. Abraham Bolden was one of the guys in Chicago. He had originally been on the Washington detail the first year under Kennedy. All right. But he didn't like it. And so he transferred back to Chicago, which is his hometown. All right. And so he had seen what happened with the Chicago plot, how there had been more or less a cover-up of it, all right? Then he went to Washington, I think this was in March of 64, and he was trying to contact the Warren Commission to tell them about what happened. He was recalled, okay, from Washington to Chicago, and he was framed, and they made it very clear what this was all about. All right. And so he was more or less railroaded, went through two trials. Okay. And he was placed in prison for a number of years. All right. And he was just recently pardoned by Joe Biden. Okay. But this is how deep the cover up went about what really happened in Chicago. They didn't they didn't want anybody. And by the way, you know how this got exposed, don't you? This was finally exposed by Edwin Black, an independent alternative uh, media guy at the time, who wrote, so I think the article was called the, the Plot to Kill Kennedy in Chicago, in the Chicago Independent, I believe it was 75, that he wrote that. It was a 26-page research project that he did. All right. And that's how that's how we found out about this, like over 10 years later. Utterly disgraceful. You know, now Elmer Moore. Is figures very prominently in Oliver Stone's documentary. Right. And we have Jim Gochenauer, a guy who knew Elmer Moore in the film. Okay, And according to Gochenauer, Elmer Moore essentially said that they were out to get Bolden, all right, that the guys running the Secret Service at that time, James Rowley and Clarence Kelly, the inspector general, you know, they were out to get him, all right? 
And he knew that. And Elmer Moore knew that for a fact. Okay. Elmer Moore was one other guy, Secret Service guys, who was in on the cover up almost from the very beginning. Okay. I, I would say within a week or two after Kennedy's assassination, he first goes to Washington. Then he goes to Dallas. And one of the things he does in Dallas is he tries to rehearse the Dallas doctors at Parkland as well. And he focused very acutely on Malcolm Perry. Okay. Cause he understood how important Malcolm Perry was because Malcolm Perry did a tracheotomy on Kennedy's throat to insert an air passage through. All right. And so it was very important for them to get Malcolm Perry to knuckle under and not say what he did on the day of the assassination. On the day of the assassination at the press conference at Parkland Hospital, Malcolm Perry said three times that the wound in the neck, okay, the anterior neck wound, appeared to him to be a wound of entrance. And of course, Dave, I don't have to tell you, that was a no-go. I know, you're not going there, buddy. Okay, that says there's an assassin from the front, all right? And that basically would have negated the single bullet theory of Arlen Specter and the entire lone nut working hypothesis. Right. So that uh, took care of that. And uh, it's interesting, when Jim Goshenauer was talking to Elmer Moore, he expressed regret about having uh, pressured Dr. Perry and then said he was ordered to do that. Did he not? Yes, yes. Clarence Kelly. Um, Clarence Kelly was the inspector general for the Secret Service. And he was a, I think he was a direct liaison, okay, for the Secret Service guys to the Warren Commission. Was that the same Clarence Kelly who later became FBI director under Nixon? I don't, I, I, I don't, I'm not sure. I'm not really sure. I'm, I'm wondering about that. But in any event, um, Elmer Moore, uh, when uh, Jim Goshenauer mentioned Abraham Bolden, how did Elmer Moore react? Oh, well, excuse me. <laughs> he said words of the effect uh, that we got, I think he said we got that, uh, the N-word. You know, we yeah. got that, okay. All right. And he said, we, and, and Elmer Moore said, no, not me, but Rowley and Kelly got him. Okay. And, and so that's, that's a direct implication. Okay. That, uh, excuse me, I'm wrong. It was Thomas Kelly. It's a different guy. His name is Thomas Kelly. All right. So that, that tells you how high up this went. You know, you've got the top guy and the number two guy who understand that they have a problem with Abraham Bolden, and they decided to cover it up. And, man, they did a great job covering it up. Well, if you do object, you don't last too long. Right, right. And that, that I think, boy, that could be the, ep- the, the epitaph for our republic. Uh, mm-hmm. It's really portentous and short and ominous. Uh, you know, uh, when the January 6th insurrection took place, I did a program reflecting on uh, some things about that. And obviously, in that footage that came out of that uh, event, we saw federal agents and, um, and, and cops of various kinds confronting the demonstrators uh, slash uh, assailants. And I pointed out that this, in the past, we have had coups d'etat that did succeed with confrontations between federal agents and citizens. And in particular, there is a brief reference, I believe, in JFK. This is a, there is a longer discussion in the book Into the Nightmare by James McBride about the Secret Service confronting Parkland physicians when they took JFK's coffin and corpse away at gunpoint. Uh, tell us about that, if you would. Well, after Kennedy had been declared uh, dead at uh, Parkland Hospital, the coroner there, or the chief pathologist, 
was a guy named Earl Rose. His office was right in the first floor of Parkland Hospital, right? And they started to wheel his body out. The Secret Service started to wheel his body out. And Rose said, wait a minute, hold it, hold it. This is a homicide in Dallas, Texas. The law says that I have to conduct an autopsy, okay? And we're going to do it, all right? And the Secret Service essentially says, no, we're not. And Rose says, yes, we are. And they get in to this very heated argument, okay, about what the law is and how the Secret Service wants to break the law. Rose was very much outnumbered, okay, and also outgunned, all right? And there's many, many renditions of this story, okay? And Manchester, in his book, um, The Death of a President, says, even says this, you know, I'm not going to write down all the all the stuff that I was told about this uh, because there's so many different things that have been said about it. But you can bet they essentially shoved him up against the wall, okay, and essentially steamrollered the guy, okay, uh, to get the body out of Dallas. And that's how it ended up in Bethesda with probably one of the worst autopsy teams that you could imagine. Earl Rose is a pretty accomplished pathologist, okay, but these guys in Bethesda were not, all right? And so this is one. And the other thing, of course, in my opinion, I'm labeling this as my opinion. I don't think they could have controlled Earl Rose the way they did these three autopsy doctors that night, okay? Because the three autopsy doctors they ended up with were all part of the military, okay? And... There was a lot, and I don't have to tell you this, Dave, you know it. You know, there was a lot of top brass inexplicably in that autopsy room that night. That for the life of me, I still don't know why all those guys were there. You know, the number goes, you know, the, the official number is 33. But in one of the interviews we did, one of the FBI agents, I believe it was Seibert, James Seibert. Okay. Because him and the other FBI, you know, Neil, passed a sheet around. He, he said not everybody signed. So the estimates go up to like 42 at the high end. Okay. And as we know, and I'm, again, I don't have to tell you this, they directly interfered with the autopsy, which I don't think they would have been able to do that with their old Rose. Uh, in Jim Garrison's file, as we noted in our interviews uh, about uh, Destiny Betrayed, uh, Colonel Fink actually testified on the stand under oath that he was ordered by an unnamed superior officer not to dissect the wound in Kennedy's back. That is testimony of a conspiracy under oath in a courtroom. Now, that's you're exactly right. And this is something that really gets me angry. Okay, this is a sworn testimony under oath of a guy who was right there. And he didn't want to say this. You know why we know we didn't want to say it? Because the guy had to ask him the question eight times. And then the judge had to order him to answer. Okay, he didn't want to say this. All right. Now, now, let me combine that. The fact that there was no dissection of the back wound with the interview I did with Henry Lee before we got him on camera. I asked him this question. I said, can you do a trajectory analysis on the Kennedy assassination? And here you have probably the number one criminalist in the United States turning to me and saying no. And I said, no. He said, no. And I said, why? And he said, because you cannot do an accurate trajectory analysis if there is no dissection. You're just guessing. Okay. And people will tell you that they can. And people will give you a very good estimation 
but you cannot do it with any kind of accuracy without dissection. And then when that's the number one criminalist in America saying that to me, okay? So when these, you know, these people tell us, you know, well, you don't have any very good credentials. Well, Henry Lee sure does. Okay. And that's what he said. (laughs) Henry Lee, is that the same Henry Lee who also gave testimony in the O.J. Simpson case? Yes. Uh huh. Okay. Very good. I I was, I was right about that. Uh, You know, Jim, as mentioned by um, the uh, autopsy photographer, Mr. Ringer, uh, some do object, but they don't last too long. So that, I think, underlines and serves as a foundation for an awful lot of this cover-up. But you mentioned two former FBI, two former FBI agents named Siebert and Neil. Is it O'Neill? O'Neill. Uh, O'Neill. O'Neill. Right. We will be coming back to them because they, like a handful of other federal agents, uh, performed honorably and honestly, and it is the information that they gave both about autopsy photographs, the discrepancies in the wounds, and also about the bullet that was found in Parkland. And uh, so uh, we will get to that when we get uh, more into the forensics and the uh, autopsy information. But we should note that, that some of these federal agents involved, such as Messrs. Siebert and O'Neill uh, behaved honorably and obviously at some risk to themselves, and uh, we, we owe them a lot of credit. It, it, one other thing that, that comes to mind, Jim, uh, bearing in mind the observation of Mr. Swinger, I forgot which position it was from part that might have been uh, uh, Dr. Clark. Uh, or it might have been uh, Dr. Crenshaw, but a uh, another doctor named Don Miller, as I recall, had worked with him, and some of these doctors would at times be candid about what they saw, and at other times would obfuscate what took place and stick to the official one. I wonder if you would develop that for us, and again, keeping in mind what Mr. Stringer observed. Well, Stringer was the autopsy photographer of record, okay? And the important thing about his testimony is that when he was confronted, well, let me, let me explain one thing. Jeremy Gunn did a very clever thing with Stringer. He got him talking before they showed him the evidence. Okay, so in other words, he couldn't change his story once he was confronted with the evidence. And that's a problem we have in this case. People change their stories. All right. And so he got him on the record. Okay, what kind of film did you use? What kind of process did you use? How many shots did you take? All right. Did you see a damaged cerebellum low in the back of the head? So he got him on the record with all this stuff. Then he walks him into the room. With the photographs there. And it was Jeremy Gunn and Doug Horn were the, were the two guys from the review board. And then he says, these are the pictures. As you can see, this is a pretty intact brain. The cerebellum's not damaged. And he said, didn't you say the cerebellum was damaged? And he said, yes. But then Stringer did a very funny thing. He got up. He walked over to the pictures. And he started putting his eyes right on the bottom right of the of the photograph. Okay. And he says, this is numbered. This is a press pack. These pictures were taken with a press pack. I didn't use a press pack. Okay. And he said, this is not Kodachrome. I think this is Ansco. I didn't use Ansco. Okay. And then Jeremy Gunn asked him, he said, are you ready to deny you took these pictures? And he says, if that's Ansco and this is a press pack, I didn't take those pictures. All right. Now, let me ask you something, Dave. I'm sure you're familiar with the old TV series, Perry Mason. 
Oh yeah. <laughs> okay. Now this, was this the Perry Mason moment? You know, I mean, could you get any better than this, even if you wrote the script? You know? Uh, no, you know, and, and one of the things that's so funny, well not ha ha funny, but grotesque funny, is that those television courtroom and cop shows, I think in many ways have framed America's or Americans uh cognitive talent for processing forensic information. And it's amazing to me to see uh, a very crude cover-up and obvious fabrication being endorsed from uh, to this day by the highest authorities in the land. Uh, Jim, we were talking about film and uh, what Mr. Stringer was doing with the uh, photographs of the autopsy, and he thereby showed that what, what he he opined that he did not take those photographs. Another film, obviously, was the motion picture of the Zapruder film. And we spoke about how it was an appearance by Robert Groden and the late comedian Dick Gregory on Geraldo Rivera's Goodnight America that spawned the HSCA. Uh, tell us about the ARRB's experience with the Zapruder film and what ultimately happened to it. The Zapruder film was in the possession of the National Archives. The Zapruder family knew that the ARB was going to try and take the film. They tried to get it back. And the National Archives says, no, no, we're staying here. You know the review board is going to try for a taking of the film. Okay. And so that's what happened. You know, but nobody in their wildest dreams, you know, would have ever thought that as a result of this, it went to an arbitration board, okay? Because the review board, they, they couldn't settle on a number, okay? And so it went to arbitration. Robert Bennett, one of these big, high-flying, you know, Washington attorneys, represented the Zapruder film. And they ended up getting, I think, $16 million, which is unbelievable, Okay, because, you know, because they've been making money off this thing ever since the assassination. They've been making money off it for 30 years. Okay. And, and it wasn't cheap. When you, when you wanted to use this for a TV show or a movie, they charge you quite, you know, into, well into the five figures. Okay. And, and so what happened is that after the Zapruder family got their big payoff, what did they do? They donated the film to the Sixth Floor Museum in Dallas. So in other words, if you want to use the Pruder film now, you have to go through the Sixth Floor in order to get their permission. Uh, and the Sixth Floor Museum, uh, can you tell us, we've got about seven oh, minutes left. Well, well, let's, let's just, let's just put it this way. It's backed by the big people in Dallas, Texas. Okay. The very wealthy, the very powerful people are responsible for the Sixth Floor Museum. So what you get in there is like 95% of the time that you're there, you get the official story. Okay. And then if you go over to their bookstore, about 95% of the books are backing the official story. All right. And that's what they're there for, you know. And that's why they have been lasting a long time. <laughs> yeah. And that's why they have so much money, you know. Absolutely. Uh, Jim, we are, we have about, oh, six, seven minutes left in the program. Uh, Douglas Horn, uh, was, uh, one of the ARRB people. And in the interviews, uh, that, that, uh, were taken with, I guess it was Oliver Stone interviewing Douglas Horn. And Douglas Horn, perhaps keeping in mind what, uh, Mr. Springer said, said, well, some do object, but they don't last too long. He noted some things that he had come across, but was worried if he disclosed them, and yet Oliver Stone basically drew it out of him. Uh, tell us about what Doug Horn and the ARRB learned about the pay records of Lee Harvey Oswald in the Marines, and also Roy Truly, who was Oswald's supervisor at the Texas School Book Depositories. Yes. When Doug was trying to get certain pieces of evidence out about Lee Harvey Oswald. Okay. He was talking 
to a woman at the Social Security Administration. They couldn't actually get his tax records because there's a law against that. Okay. And so she said, look, I can tell you this from the Social Security records. He wasn't being paid by the Marine Corps in his last quarter. And that's if you take a look at the Marine Corps records, which are in the Warren Commission, uh, that's pretty much true because the last quarter, those records are written on in handwritten ink at seven installations. You will not see that on any other record that, that he was issued by the Marine Corps. So the evidence is that for whatever reason, okay, he wasn't being paid by the Marine Corps in the last quarter. All right. The other thing she said, is that truly was not being paid through the Texas School Book Depository. He wasn't going through their, uh, you know, their payroll operation. Now, what makes that interesting? Well, Roy truly was the first person to announce that Oswald was missing after the assassination. Okay. Coincidence? Maybe, maybe not. You know, but I thought that was very interesting stuff that Doug told us. And by the way, you're right. He didn't want to tell us that, you know, Oliver had to kind of coax him, you know, because he was worried about getting fired. Okay. You know, or the, the, uh, the, 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 uh, feds would come after him. And so after some coaxing, he finally came out with this information. Doug, I thought Doug was very good in the film. You know, he was, um, he was a very hard worker at the review board and I'm glad we got him on the film. Yeah, it was also very interesting, too, that he still expressed fear of retribution. Right. If he told the truth. And, and, uh, it became just, uh, I think in, in many ways, the foundation of and the epitaph for, uh, well, maybe all of my, at this point, 44 years on the air and the JFK assassination, the films, not only JFK, but JFK revisited. Well, some do object. But they don't last very long. Mm-hmm. So they, that, that is, uh, I think an epitaph perhaps for our democracy. But, uh, it, it is more than a little interesting to, to see what actually happened. And we'll be getting into, uh, the autopsy and the, uh, uh, the medical evidence, the forensic evidence, the, uh, doctoring. I, I'd love, it's something of a preview of coming attractions or maybe coming revulsions. The famous picture of, quote, Lee Harvey Oswald, unquote, the repression with a doctor on the cover of Life magazine. The various pictures, the wedding ring on Oswald's hand is on different fingers in the different pictures. Which, you know, I, I'll leave it to people's imagination what the chances are of something like that happening if we are told that the that well, if things were as we were told they were. Uh, Jim, tell us about Black Ops Radio. Kennedysandking.com and also where people can get uh, both the book and the DVDs of JFK Revisited. Okay, the book is called JFK Revisited Through the Looking Glass. Uh, me and Oliver Stone then wrote the introduction for it, and you can get that at Abbey Books, Barnes and Noble, and Amazon. I, I hardly recommend. As you can see, Dave has read it very carefully. Okay, and it's a very good book. I'm very proud of it. All right, I'm on a semi-regular for Leno Sanex Black Op Radio out of Vancouver, all right? And the website is kennedysandking.com. Okay, you'll learn a lot if you've never been there. And the DVD, I think it's three discs, and you get the four-hour, the two-hour, and the one with me and Oliver's commentary. And let me say something about this. This DVD came out in late July, it was in the top 10 for eight weeks and it was number one for three weeks. It then dropped out and then went back in at number seven. It then what dropped out again, then back, went back in at number six. Right now it's at number 13 and of the do- Amazon documentaries. Remember, this is three months after it's been released. Okay, a little bit more than three months. And we're still, you know, top selling. Amazing. Well, remember, Dave, nobody wants to hear about the Kennedy assassination. Oh, and, and that includes me. I mean, God, <laughs> nobody wants to know about that. You know, 
Some do object, but they don't last for long. And also, I'm doing a Patreon site with three one-hour interviews per week. Every other week, we're doing a Zoom Q&A. And coming up uh, down the line will be appearances by various researchers and authors, including Jim Diagenio. This concludes further record program number 1269. Interview number eight with Jim Diagenio about JFK Revisited. This is being recorded on October 28th of the year 2022. For Jim Diagenio, this is David Ray saying thanks for listening.